Like with several other similar episodes, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to discuss this one, this one separate from the previous, is because of the best of both worlds syndrome. <laughs> Don't mistake me, I love best of both worlds. One and two. And Redemption 1 and 2 turned out pretty well okay. And then there's this one. And then there's Descent. And, well, let's just say that it kind of became a frickin' trend. I've actually already talked about this from my perspective, because I've already covered Voyager, by which point it became normal, part of policy, to not design Part 2 when you were designing Part 1. Specifically because of the success of Best of Both Worlds, and the fact that they kept doing it. Now... <clears throat> Whether that works out well or not, that's up to you. But it's probably worth noting that, in my opinion, this episode is substantially worse than the first one. Now, you're probably thinking, Oh, Lord, you're an idiot, you're worthless, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're terrible, and you're ugly. And all of that's true. But, I stand by my statement. Because, ultimately, this episode feels thrown together. So we have an episode where basically everyone, like I, I, I was reading the behind the scenes, and there's plenty of behind the scenes in this one. Like four separate people all said we just skipped explaining what was going on. Like we were trying to. We were trying to come up with the sciencey explanation for the Davidians and what they were doing and why they were doing it. And it just wasn't working. Like, you know, there's the whole B plot about the aliens and what they're trying to do, which had to be dropped because there just wasn't enough room in people's brains to assimilate it is a quote from Braga. And, you know, Taylor mentioned that, Moore mentioned that, Pillar mentioned that. And so all these people are all like, yeah, eject the Davidian plot. Okay, I'm with that. No, seriously. It still bothers me, and I still think it's a flaw, and an example of incorrect or bad writing. But as long as you make something good out of it, I'm with that. That is Cloud Effect in a nutshell. However, they then decided to spend the entire latter half of this episode focused entirely on the Davidian plot. A plot they went out of their way to not explain. So they're a threat. Why? Because they are. Why are they coming back to this period? Why did they specifically select Earth? Is it any human neural tissue that they can eat? Is this the first time they've done this? Or the 50th time? I mean, there's like 30 questions that are not answered here. And that is, of course, deliberate, as I mentioned. But it kind of deflates the threat when the threat is just kind of... Whoa. Now, this is then made worse, because the episode pulls not once, but twice the ticking clock fake dilemma thing. We've got to destroy them, even though it's the only way. You know, it, it, it's, it's what we've got to do. And you know what? I'll complain. Let, let's get back to that later. That's the end of the episode. Let's rewind. Let's rewind. <laughs> Okay, we're back at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> I I have a little bit of notes here where I was keeping track of inconsistencies. I stopped after the fourth. I'm not going to... I mentioned this last episode. There's a lot of problems here. Moving on. It is very Minoski. Don't sweat the details. I do want to mention one interesting thing. In Booby Trap, Guinan mentions that she likes bald men because of... And a reference to Picard. In Ensign Row, she re mentions that she, a bald man really took care of her once. And, and Picard really took care of her once. I think actually he specifically says. That's why he directs her to him. I just think it's interesting that this episode actually showcases that in action. Actually shows how he helped take care of her and didn't leave her and helped keep her safe and, and got help for her. 
when she needed it back in the past. Now, you could argue that he didn't actually save her life, and that's entirely valid. But you know what he did? He provided comfort. Speaking of someone who's been ill, severely ill, more than once in my life, having someone there to comfort you is invaluable. It's no wonder he had, the two connected in such a way, in such an out-of-the-way order. It reminds me of the, the idea of the traveler's wife, or the time traveler's wife, excuse me, where he meets her for the first time at a different point than when she meets him for the first time. Anyways. So... I like their outfits. I do. I, I think they actually look good, especially Picard's. It's very simple, very natural. I like it. Uh, and, of course, we have Carmichael there, who's like, Oh, yeah, we must have the rent. Okay. This is when you can go ahead and make fun of me. I, I, I give you my full permission. Because every scene with Miss Carmichael actually bothers me. It's only about four minutes total in the episode. One-tenth of the episode total. But still, one-tenth of the episode is spent on what I would consider actual padding and filler. There's nothing good about it. It's probably supposed to be funny, and I don't find it funny. So, for me, it just doesn't work. It doubly doesn't work, though, because it's... Well, it's kind of nonsensical. Think about this. Obviously, there's been a time jump, because they don't, we don't cut into them showing up in the past. By this point, they've rented a place, they've gotten their outfits, they've infiltrated the area, and they're already actively looking for the Davidians, right? So they've invested themselves a little bit into this new scenario of the past. So we skip over the acclamation, oh my god, it's the past step, which is good. But then they're running late on the rent. Why? You can't tell me the rent is that much at this point in history. And furthermore, you can't tell me they're having that much trouble getting a hold of money when they had no trouble getting a hold of their clothing and equipment, and food, for that matter, considering how long they've been there. And yet they can't pay the rent? This is made worse because the second time she shows up, Data's with them, who has been flinging around wads of dollars as if it was nothing. This, this is compounded by the third point. So, I don't find it funny. Uh, it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't do anything for the characters for me. And I think that's the final point Well, it doesn't really work for me. See, filler, good filler, in my opinion, has to fulfill one of those three points. It has to be, be sensical. It has to make sense. It has to be logical that they're saying or doing or whatever that they're doing. It has to... It, it doesn't have to be all three of these, by the way. It just has to be at least one of them. So it has to make sense, or it has to inform one of the five points of story. Uh, developing a character, showing how a character's moving, uh, something to do with the plot, uh, maybe establishing some bit of setting, you know, world building, or maybe something that's connected to the theme of the work. And the final point, it has to be fun, the sixth point of story. It has to be enjoyable. And I hate to bang on this point, but this is why I hate these scenes so much, even though they're only a tenth of the episode. They're what I remember most about this episode because of how much it bothers me. That being said, remember how I mentioned many times my theory that Time Zero Part 1 was stretched? Considering that Time Zero Part 2 was written completely segregate, with, with no idea how it was going to conclude, I'm starting to think that even more. I'm starting to think Time Zero Part 1 was going to be a fairly bog-standard adventure. No pun intended. You know, they go back, and, oh my gosh, there's Mark Twain, but the Davidians are here. They're eating us. Oh no, we better stop them. So they get the cane, and they have the wrestle, and they go back, and they destroy it with their torpedoes, and they win the end. And you just cut out a whole lot of the middle, and that kind of makes sense for a single episode. But then they hit this one, it's like, okay, 
Uh, now what? Um, okay. Well, we don't want to focus too much on the sci-fi stuff. Why don't we make Mark Twain a new antagonist? There you go. And so Mark Twain becomes the main antagonist of episode two. Now, this is also where the episode loses me. If you're paying attention, this is the third time the episode has lost me. Because Mark Twain, it, it could have worked. I could see the bare bones, the, the skeleton of the idea there. And in fact, I love it. I love the idea. Because what I see is the idea that, well, Mark Twain's a bitter old man. And that is the perfect antagonistic for the idealistic Starfleet members of the future. No, really, I mean that. And in fact, over the course of the episode, we could have had a slow conversion of him from being this bitter old man who thinks the worst of everyone, who is cynical and, and, and negative. That's the word I want to use there. And have him slowly realize that things are not as horrible as he thinks. That mankind can be better. That people can be better. And that things will get better. And have that brighten him and renew, rejuvenate the, the ideology, the, the, the idealism of his, of his self. Now, the episode kind of does that. But the problem is he stays embittered and stark until he's in a turbo lift with Troy. And then she tells him, he, he flat out lays out all the reasons why he doesn't believe her. And then she says, no, you're wrong. And then he just changes his mind. And then he's just in, in, in the second. There's, there's, there's no arc. There's no gradient. He goes from blank to blank B. Just a, a sudden shift, like someone hit a frickin' switch. And that's why it doesn't work for me. And it's such a shame, because I love that idea. No, I really do. And I want to explain why really quick. So, how many of you... God, how do I phrase this? You don't have to answer me in comments. Although, if you'd like to, you're more than welcome to. But I have a feeling that plenty of people would, if they were into Star Trek, they'd be suspicious, bitter, resentful, negative. We have been so trained by real life to be suspicious and... That's eh, a bad word. Let's, let's use a different word, Laura. Let's use the word cautious. I've mentioned several times the theme that kept coming up at the latter end of Season 5, how dangerous it is to reach out a hand to someone. Well, that the reason that danger exists is why we tend to be this way. How often do we teach our children to be wary of strangers? How often do we try to not stop on the side of the road to help someone? Because it might be a problem. It might be a threat. It might be a danger. You don't know. And, of course, <laughs> if I walked up to you and said, hey, uh, an alien race has shown up, and they are benevolent and loving, and they just want to take care of you and help you, I know many people, including me, who would immediately think, it's a trap. First thought. It's just the cynicism that we have kind of become in real life. And I'm not even necessarily saying that's a bad thing per se, because it helps us to survive in a pretty horrible way world that we live in. But that, of course, is why I love this idea so much, of this transition for Twain that should have happened. Because he took that cynicism, he took that darkening, and was proven fundamentally wrong in it. That things did get better. That people did improve. Can you imagine what that would feel like to know that? 
Can, can you imagine, really, legitimately imagine, if someone walked up to you and was able to tell you, and you knew with absolute certainty they were telling the truth, that in you know 500 years the future is actually bright and wondrous and joyful? How that would feel. Instead, we get Mark Twain prancing about and being an idiot, <laughs> poking at a device with a cigar, giving advice to Jack London, ha-ha, I get what you did there, game. And then, of course, Data doesn't detect him until he gives himself away. Am I the only one who remembers that Data has exceptionally good hearing? Like, really, really good hearing? That was actually a character point at one point. <sighs> Quick aside while I'm complaining about Mark Twain. If Clemens really thinks that they're a threat, if there's some kind of future people who are here to destroy or damage, and to the point where he is willing to threaten them and, and harass them and research them, why is he so utterly unafraid of them? Like, he actually thinks he has the drop on them later when he's got a gun. A single action, uh, by the way, Data. But even ignoring that, before that, he didn't have a gun. He didn't have anything. And he's just like, oh, I'm going to expose you. Like, imagine, if you will... <laughs> just, just bear with me, okay? Imagine if Emperor Palpatine... Ah, it's probably overselling it. You know, if, if some member of the Galactic Empire, an Imperial officer, was like, we're going to capture and just enslave your planet. <laughs> and you just start threatening to their face when you have nothing and are on their turf. And so they're like, okay... I mean, think about it for a second. It's even funnier because, A, Data does still have his phaser, and, I mean, granted, he's using it for the device. And, B, he knows how to do the Vulcan neck pinch. No, really, he does. This has been established back in Unification, so... I mean, this is ignoring the fact that if Data really wanted to, he could crush Clement's skull like a grape. Anyways, whatever, moving on. You see why this episode kind of loses me? It's a lot of great potential that never goes anywhere. The Davidians are creepy and kind of terrifying, and and they don't go anywhere. And then we've got the idea of the, 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 the journey of, of Clemens into this new... Nope, that doesn't go anywhere. And then we've got the idea of we will finally establish the connection between Picard and Guylan, which doesn't really go anywhere. they got like two scenes to, to, together, for God's sakes. <sighs> so... Uh, they infiltrate a hospital. They find the Davidians. They take the cane. Woo. Uh, they, they have another Carmichael scene because, of course, they do. And then just... I, I mean, I have no... I, I just race through the events because so much of this is so disinteresting to me. There is one little tidbit I wanted to comment on. Mark Twain is dragged into the future and Riker says, Okay, you cannot... Tell and Riker angrily is like, Okay, Mark Twain is not supposed... One of the leading writers of the century is not supposed to leave. And Mark Twain... The guy playing him. He just has this little, oh, thank you. <laughs> like, oh, I didn't expect to hear that one. No, that's, you, know, you can just see it kind of tickles him. It's a nice little touch. It's a nice little touch. And they mentioned, there's actually a little tidbit here I just wanted to talk about very briefly. I've talked so many times about replicated food because it just keeps coming up in both TNG but especially in DS9. I've always kind of thought that some people, in fact, I would imagine plenty of people replicate mats, er, ingredients, and then turn that into food with cooking, you know, with chemistry, right? I mean, that's what I would do. 
at least 90% of the time, unless I didn't have time, then I'd be like, yeah, okay, meal 37. Wouldn't that be cool? You open your fridge, all right, I need, let's see, I need cheese, I need some bratwurst, extra spice, please, you know this, and just go down the list, and then you go and you cook it up. Wouldn't that be cool? I'd be basically playing The Sims at that point, but I, I think I could live with that. Anyways, <clears throat> I'm looking at my notes here. There's this Davidian, it's, I actually wrote in my notes, so then there's Twain and his perspective, and, you know, Troy's comment about poverty's been eliminated on Earth. It's very important. And then we have a very brief Guinan and Picard scene. And then, oh yeah, there's a Davidian here. I, f I forgot you guys existed. We will destroy your whole world. What follows is a scene that's well-constructed, except for how little sense it makes, which is very Jomanowski. So what happens is... Riker is like, oh, you're right, we need to... You know, they have the meeting, Riker's insistent on saving Picard... And Worf and Troy are both like, no, you need to destroy the place. And they're like, okay, fine, you're right. Prepare to fire torpedoes. Let me know when they're ready. And that was the first moment I was like, wait, what? You don't need to prepare. This isn't Star Trek Two, where you need to go into battle readiness. Your torpedoes are ready to go right now, buddy. Uh, you could be like, hey, th uh, torpedoes, go, fire. And it would be shooting within seconds. Then we got to the bridge a couple minutes later, and they mention the firing sequence is almost ready, which will take another minute. Huh? This is why I called this the fake, uh, the fake ticking clock that I mentioned earlier. It's like, oh no, they might destroy the thing, and if they do, they'll destroy the Earth. Thankfully, Jordy got the bright idea to attach a 500-year-old head to a 30-year-old body, and apparently it still works fine. Good lord. I, <laughs> I'm just impressed. Mr. Sung, he really, really knew how to build those to last, apparently. Yikes. <clears throat> so, data works fine, but he's processing a message, a binary message that was put into him. Okay, now in the interest of fairness, Picard certainly has time. Like He has as much time as he needs to write in a binary message, but binary? I want you to think about how long it would take to type out from memory, with no reference points, a message in binary. That is damned impressive, especially for Picard, of all people. In fact, my first thought when I first saw this was he was doing a Morse code thing, which is a lot easier to memorize for a simple, squishy human being, and relatively easy to understand for someone like Data. Fortunately, he gets the message in time and sends the message up, No, we must not fire. Instead, we must send someone back to save him. Okay, no problem. But he hasn't come back yet. Clearly, they're all dead and we need to destroy it anyway. So we have our second fake out with the torpedoes. Really? Really? Whatever. <laughs> now, all of this complaining aside, there's a couple things I do like uh, about the ending. First of all, I do like how Twain kind of has that whole, I'm just going to leave, I'm going to leave the watch thing there. Completing history, full circle. Second, there's actually a really good scene, which ironically has no dialogue in it, between Picard and Guinan. He just walks in and looks at her, and she just looks back, and they just look at each other, and that's it. And it says everything it needs to. It's a very good scene.
So that's basically it for the episode. The last thing I wanted to talk about is Season 6 in general. Season 6, there was a, a significant changing of the guard behind the scenes. Now, I haven't really been doing a season thing. Like, I, if you remember way back when I first started the Voyager thing, I had a video just about Season 1 of Voyager. I stopped doing that because nobody really liked it. Um, and it just seemed redundant. But I do feel like here it's important to talk about Season 6 and 7 in particular. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Season 6 now. And then we're going to go through Season 6. And then we're going to do another powwow at the end. And then we're going to talk about Season 7 in the same way. The reason why is because, like I said, this is a bit of a unique point in Star Trek history. We have the, mo the movie was announced. Star Trek Generations was announced. And they had, they were at the, at the time they were filming this episode, they were filming Emissary. So DS9 was in production at this point in time. And they had gotten to the point where they're like, okay, we're ready to go on all this stuff. We've got lots of things going on. But the problem was they didn't expand the staff as much as they probably should have. So a lot of the people were pulling double duty or triple duty, working on both shows, and of course doing prep work for the movie. So, just to give you a little bit of perspective, I know this is a bit in the future, but All Good Things would wrap up filming ten days before they started filming for generations. Think about that. Anyway, so a lot of things were going in a circle, so a lot of different people got to push into different roles, basically just by coincidence. This led to Braga and Moore becoming the executive, uh, the senior writers in the writers' room on the staff meet, the, the staff writers. It also meant Jerry Taylor basically took over. She kind of took over for season six, and she formally took over for season seven. Now, Miss Taylor said uh, a couple of things that they were really trying to do with season six. And there's a bunch of interviews about this. Most people all say the same general things, and it's three three ideas. Number one, push the envelope. We need to show that TNG is still vibrant, that it still has ideas, and that we're still out there. We still want to try and show that TNG is a valid alternative to Deep Space Nine, and that we know what we're doing. And they had brought in, because the writing staff had changed so substantially with Pillar and Renee, uh, as well as Ira Stephen Bear going over to DS9, basically new people had taken over the reins, so to speak. So now, now is our chance to prove ourselves, right? Second thing, they were trying very hard to avoid blank of the week. Now, I've used that phrase several times, you know, thread of the week, uh, beat, you know, the, the romance of the week, that kind of a thing. And the other thing they wanted to avoid was the A plot, B plot problem, which I have complained about many times. If you're paying attention, I've complained about this over on Voyager, so obviously this problem was not solved long term. But I want to pay very close attention as we go through Season 6 to see how successful they were at these three points. Now, I want to give my opinion now, because I haven't rewatched Season 6 other than this episode. Obviously, I do these in order, and I haven't, I'm not skipping ahead in my own work. So I haven't seen Season 6 in several, several years at this point. Having said that, my opinion, in a vacuum, just from memory, is that Season 6 is more distended from Season 5 and 4 and 3. Basically, 3, 4, and 5 is what I usually call the core great of TNG. I'm not sure if 6 belongs in that. Several people have said 6 is their favorite. But it's, you, it's because, it, it, see, I said distended. It feels like the highs are higher, because they have some really great episodes in Season 6, but the lows are lower. And it feels like the seams are really starting to show, as, as, as far as them running out of ideas and whatnot. We'll see if that's actually true going through with it. As ever, I look forward to your guys' thoughts and comments, and I'll see you guys in, um...
I guess about six or so months when we'll wrap up with season six and see how it actually managed going back through it. So I'll see you there, guys, and hopefully next week, too.